They are the hunters and trackers of thousands of potentially hazardous space rocks, and you'll meet them this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. There's something about the University of Arizona and asteroids. I suppose it's no accident. The great institution in Tucson is headquarters for several of our planet's most productive or promising projects designed to meet the challenge presented by near-Earth objects. I met the leaders of Space Watch and the Catalina Sky Survey when I visited the campus in September. You'll hear my conversations with these defenders of Earth in minutes. Then we'll head out across the solar system with Bruce Betts and What's Up, giving you another chance to win the coveted rubber asteroid. That's no comet, or if it is, it was created by us when the double asteroid redirection test spacecraft slammed into asteroid and moonlit Dimorphos. You should see the striking image captured by the Hubble Space Telescope. You'll find it at the top of the October 14 edition of the Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter. Okay, that long trail of debris does not mean we've made a comet, but it does tell us that we little humans now have the power to avoid the fate of the dinosaurs, which is a pretty good reason to light up the sky. Another great image of a subject much, much further away has been snapped by the JWST. It's a young star surrounded by a dense disk of gas and dust, a disk that is very likely to have baby worlds forming within it, much as scientists believe our own solar system was formed four and a half billion years ago. It's like looking at our own genesis. There's so much more waiting for you at planetary.org downlink. Melissa Brucker is the University of Arizona research scientist who heads Space Watch, the first of the two survey projects we'll learn about today. I was already in Tucson to host the NIAC Symposium webcast that you may have heard excerpts of in last week's show. It was a warm walk across the campus to the headquarters of the Lunar and Planetary Lab, where I met Melissa in the Space Watch offices. Melissa, welcome to Planetary Radio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for coming to visit. You know, my plan was to get you and Eric Christensen together, because I thought that would be so cool to have the two leaders of two of the world's most successful, most prominent uh, sky searches together in the same room. We couldn't quite make the schedules work. So I'm happy to talk to the two of you separately, but it would have been fun. I don't know. You want to say hi to Eric? <laughs> hi, Eric. <laughs> we actually don't see each other in person very often. <laughs> Even though his office is right just upstairs, yes, right? Yes. Well, we both do observing as well as managing the groups. Figures. So we are, of course, at the University of Arizona, which is not where either of you do your observing. You use those telescopes on that famous site known as Kitt Peak, which is still recovering from what was very close to a real observation-ending disaster. How are you recovering from that fire? We were allowed to return to the summit in August and start cleaning up all of the dust and ash that had blown into all of the observatories. And then we tested our equipment so we were able to start observing with our two main telescopes. Uh, we have a 1.8 meter or 72 inch, um, that is the Lunar and Planetary Lab telescope, built 
by Spacewatch. And we also use um, Stewart Observatory's 0.9 meter or 36 inch telescope. We tested all of our equipment there and made sure that we could open and close the domes and move the telescopes around and, and check that our instruments were still working. Uh, so we began observations again on September 11th. Congratulations. But you still don't have power or internet? <laughs> Sort of. <laughs> uh, there are two or three generators that are providing energy for the power. And Kitt Peak National Observatory has a Starlink dish that all of us together get a little bit of the data that, that goes through the Starlink dish. So thank you, Elon Musk, I suppose. I suppose. <laughs> um, let's back up. Tell us about Spacewatch. I know it's been around for over four decades yes. now. Yes. Uh, Spacewatch started in 1980 to find funds to build a telescope to do asteroid survey sky surveys. We began taking images with a CCD in 1983. We were the first asteroid survey to use CCDs. Um, before that, there was photographic plates and um, other media, <laughs> but this was the first survey using CCDs. For people who are too young to remember, and that may include you, what a change in capability CCDs brought about, right? I'd rather than, I mean, also a lot more convenient than dealing with big old glass plates. Yes. It was revolutionary, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. So we began as a survey. We are not currently acting as a discovery survey right now, we do astrometric follow-up. So we look at objects that have just been discovered to get more measures, measurements of them so that once we found them, they don't get lost. And I'm going to follow up on your follow-up work in a moment, but you're still making some discoveries, yes. right? I saw a graph that showed a steadily rising line of newly discovered objects. Definitely, yes. How do you quantify? How do you talk about the amount of work that's done overall, because there are some specific types of follow-ups, which I also want to get into because they're pretty exciting. Um, so we uh, have software that presents us with lots of near-Earth asteroid choices to look at, and we tag them based on what list they came from. Hmm. So we focus primarily on virtual impactors, which are asteroids whose orbits our knowledge of their orbits is uncertain enough that there is a possibility that it might hit the Earth within one, the next 100 years. So we focus on those. We focus on potentially hazardous asteroids, which are asteroids that are 140 meters in size or larger, and also whose orbit gets within 0.05 AU of Earth's orbit. So we try to look at PHAs that get really close to Earth, within the next 40 years, and also we try and look at them when they're fainter than most other follow-up telescopes can look at them. There is one more major thing that, as we speak, is only about a week away. It will already have happened by the time people hear this program. You know what I'm leading up to, and again, Space Watch got everything started. Yes. Um, in April of 1996, one of our observers discovered the asteroid Didymos, and Didymos's moon will be the target of NASA's first planetary defense mission. You were telling me before we started recording that you folks are still very involved with the DART team at the Applied Physics Lab. What, what's the current status and what is your involvement at this point? 
Space Watch's involvement is that we plan on taking light curve data of the Didymo system after the impact. I imagine there must really be quite a bit of excitement around here, knowing that this object <laughs> that, that you folks discovered, that Space Watch discovered, is now the subject of this very important test. Definitely. And we're very excited to be able to look at Didymos and Dimorphos. It's really exciting. We can't wait. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been working in planetary defense uh, for the Planetary Defense Coordination Office from before it was named that. And so to be part of the very first planetary defense physical physical test of hitting an asteroid is, is really exciting. I'll say. I mean, in addition to maybe saving the planet someday, these are just interesting objects to learn about, right? Yes. Every near-Earth asteroid that we've had up-close images of has been different. One of my favorite things about talking to people like you across the 20 years of this show has been the surprises and the degree of diversity that we keep finding out there in our own backyard, our own solar system. Definitely. With the OSIRIS-REx tag sampling of Bennu, Mm -hmm. they said that when the probe went in to collect the sample, the surface of Bennu did not slow the spacecraft down at all. <laughs> what slowed it down was the thrusters, the engine thrusters. Uh-huh. So it just went right in. Uh, I heard someone say they described it as a ball pit, like a wow, like a uh-huh. children's ball pit. The kind my my <laughs> six year old grandson would have a great time in. Yes. Wow. Uh, so there's your, there's your rubble pile again. Mm-hmm. Very exciting stuff. Thank you for welcoming us to your office. We'll, we'll talk with Eric Christensen next about the Catalina Sky Survey, your neighbor here, and I'll, I'll make sure that uh, he knows you said hello. <laughs> that sounds great. University of Arizona astronomer Melissa Brucker is principal investigator for Space Watch. I'll return with her colleague Eric Christensen in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. 25 or so comets are likely to forever bear the name of our next guest. In addition to discovering those comets, Eric Christensen now directs the fantastically successful Catalina Sky Survey. I made that walk across the University of Arizona campus once again on my last day in Tucson so that I could sit down with Eric. Eric, thank you for welcoming me to your office here in the uh, Lunar and Planetary Lab offices uh, at the University of Arizona. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. As you know, I've already talked to your colleague, uh, Melissa Brucker, who had Space Watch. And by the way, she says hello. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. As I said to her, that these two 
extremely well known. I mean, internationally renowned uh, searches, sky searches, are both based on this campus, actually just a few floors apart in this building. It's an interesting relationship. That's right. We've uh, evolved along similar but but parallel tracks. Uh, we occupy the fifth floor. They occupy the second floor. We occupy Mount Lemmon. They occupy Kitt Peak. And uh, we, we've both done uh, a, a number of discovery efforts and, and also follow-up. Very, very successfully. Now, while Space Watch now, I guess, is mostly all about follow-up, you guys are still very, very much in, uh, in the discovery business and very successful at it. We're most of the way through uh, 2022. How many near-Earth objects have you guys come up with this year? I don't have an exact count. The number changes uh, pretty much every day. But if we can produce roughly what we've produced the last few years, uh, we'll find maybe 1,500 near-Earth asteroids, new near-Earth asteroids this year. Absolutely amazing. And I read that of the roughly 30,000 or so that have been found so far, CSS, Catalina Sky Survey, is responsible for about uh, almost half of those. Nearly half, yes. Certainly, uh, when combined with Space Watch, uh, the University of Arizona has discovered over half of the near-Earth asteroid population. Really, the only survey that I saw that is kind of neck and neck with you is PanStars in in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Is there any sense of competition there? Inevitably, there is some. Um, however, we're all on uh, Team NASA, Team Planet Earth, uh, Team Near-Earth Asteroid. And so it's a, also a collaborative relationship. Um, we, we root for them. Uh, I, I hope they root for us. Uh, hey, Richard. Hey, Rob. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I'm sure it's, it's a balance of collaboration and, and competition. It is. You've mentioned the NASA relationship. Is that now partly, at least, through the, the Planetary Defense Coordination Office? It is. Um, the Planetary Defense Coordination Office runs the Near-Earth Object Observation Program, which we apply to uh, every few years for our funding. But most of the uh, near-Earth asteroids that have been discovered in the last 25 years have been discovered by NASA-funded projects. Currently, uh, Catalina Sky Survey, PanSTARRS, the ATLAS Project, uh, are the main ground-based NEO discovery projects. But historically, there, there have been several that have uh, come and gone, and some of which, like Catalina, are, are still going. Lindley Johnson, the head of the PDCO, Planetary Defense Officer for NASA, he's been on the show many times, mm -hmm. good friend of the show. You know that I walked over here uh, across campus uh, from the Mirror Lab where I was spending time with uh, uh, director there, the chair and director, uh, Buell Januzzi, and that's an interview and tour that we'll be sharing before too long. He mentioned LPL, Lunar and Planetary Lab, as, as a sister department on campus. I mean, there's more evidence of how much effort is underway across uh, everything space at the University of Arizona. I mean, what's your relationship uh, with, the, uh, with the Stewart Observatory? Well, the Catalina Sky Survey operates uh, several telescopes, some of which we operate full-time, some of which we apply for time uh, on and, and use part-time, but all of these telescopes are owned by the Stewart Observatory. We, uh, we have partnered with them to uh, put these telescopes to, to use, but uh, we work very closely with their mountain operations team who, who keeps, keep the telescopes up and running, and, and also with the, the directorship to explore new possible ways forward, possible future directions for, for Catalina Sky Survey. 
Are there any standout discoveries that you'd want to call attention to? I mean, I'm, I'm sure we could go for an hour just going through some of the things that uh, the CSS is, has found uh, across the solar system. But I have one in mind in particular, actually, something that happened in, in 2008 uh, that you're Richard Kowalski uh, discovered. I bet you know the one I'm talking about. That's right. Yeah. Most uh, asteroid names just sound like license plates. They're a bunch of numbers and letters. But this is uh, 2008 TC3 that you're yeah. referring to. Yeah, that's it. And uh, that was the, the first asteroid that was detected prior to Earth impact. Hmm. So Richard Kowalski was at the telescope uh, operating the survey as, as he, he often did, along with other uh, observers. But on this night, he detected something that was later shown to uh, be on a very near-term impact uh, course with, with the Earth. It was a surprise. It was a surprise to all of us. I mean, mm. we, we had been uh, searching the skies for you know the better part of a decade looking for near-Earth asteroids, but I don't think we really thought that we would actually find something immediately before it hit. The common wisdom at the time, and, and really to this day, is that we need to find large objects well in advance of any possible close approaches or, or impacts. Our mandate is to find objects that are 140 meters and larger. But in order to do that, we have to cast a pretty wide net for things that are moving. And that net can, can sweep up uh, 140 meter objects, but also three or four meter objects, which is about the size of 2008 TC3. And I remember those photos of people in the desert in Sudan actually finding fragments. I mean, if I was uh, Richard Kowalski, I'd be I'd be pretty proud of this discovery. Yes, uh, and deservedly so. I mean, it was yeah. it was a, a nice confluence of you know this sort of human uh, automation interaction where we had a highly automated system and an expert observer at the telescope able to identify you know correctly identify near Earth asteroid candidates and and even get follow up observations. Are there any others, uh, maybe a couple, that you'd want to call attention to, their standouts? Um, well, there's, uh, you know, a few more impactors. So af after the mm. 2008 TC3 in, in 2008, there were, there were two others that we detected uh, prior to impact. Uh, I say we as the Catalina Sky Survey, but as it happens, Richard Kowalski was, was in the chair that night. I'm not sure what the what what his magic secret is, but um, <laughs> we, we hope the we, we hope to find more. We've also detected a few uh, so-called mini moons, uh, again very small near Earth asteroids, very close to the Earth that mm -hmm. were temporarily captured by the Earth's gravity and and maybe did a few erratic loops around the Earth before before leaving the the Earth Moon system. That was another surprise, I guess, something that we were not specifically looking for, but again, we had a, a system that was attuned to finding fast-moving objects near the Earth. And there are some descriptions of some of these as well, as well as pretty much everything else that we're talking about on the Catalina Sky Survey website, which we will link to from this week's show at uh, planetary.org slash radio, including these little temporary uh, moons of Earth. Uh, just a fascinating find. Amy Meinzer from JPL, now a professor here on campus, as you know, developing the NEO Surveyor Infrared Space Telescope that uh, we're very supportive of at the Planetary Society. How is that going to change things when NEO surveyors up there scanning the skies from above Earth's atmosphere? We're all looking forward to, to the yeah. launch and, and uh, healthy operation of, of NEO surveyor, working in infrared light where asteroids are relatively brighter, being able to operate day and night. There are no day-night cycles at uh, L1. Yeah. NEO Surveyor is designed to essentially 
fulfill the original mandate to find 140 meter near-Earth asteroids or potentially hazardous asteroids. And we expect that it, uh, it will be able to do that very efficiently and, and much more quickly than, than we could from the ground. But uh, things like 2008 TC3, those are likely to be the purview of ground-based surveys. I think there's a future for, for ground-based follow-up, ground-based survey, uh, space-based survey, space-based follow-up. Let's throw that in there, too. Yeah, um, yeah. There's plenty of work to be done for everybody. Lots more rocks out there to discover. That's right. And we should mention L1, of course, Lagrange Point 1, one of those relatively stable spots out there in space where uh, a, a spacecraft like Neo Surveyor can just kind of sit and not have to do a lot of work to stay in that one spot. I'm glad that you and your, your great team are, uh, are doing all this work on our behalf, Eric. Uh, keep up the great work, clear skies, and uh, thanks for taking a few minutes with us on Planetary Radio. Thank you very much, Matt. Catalina Sky Survey Principal Investigator Eric Christensen. I spent much more time talking with Eric and Melissa Brucker at the University of Arizona. You can hear it all at planetary.org radio and in our podcast. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio, and welcome the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society, everybody. Hey, everybody. How you doing? I keep getting these wonderful messages that make me feel great. And I'm going to share this one because it's from Chris Midden in, in Illinois, uh, who I actually met when I was going down there for the, the big solar eclipse a few years ago and hope to go back in 2024. Matt, your influence of sharing the PB&J of space will never be gone. When I teach my middle school science class, I often reflect on all you have shared over the years and that excitement and passion you shared stays with me and I pass it on. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, yeah, you're great. <laughs> I really am getting so many of these. No, it's really wonderful. And you you truly deserve it. (laughs) I got it out of him. Hey, you don't have to go on. It's okay. You can tell us about the night sky. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So we've got planets in the evening sky. It's just a wonderful time to look at planets in the evening sky. I saw Mars the other night. It added, it made me joyful. It's getting so very bright. Just after sunset, uh, we've got Jupiter looking very bright over in the east, east southeast, and to its upper right quite a ways is yellowish Saturn looking kind of bright. If you wait another hour, a couple hours, you'll see this really bright, not Jupiter bright, but we're getting there, reddish planet thing, which is Mars. It looks like a red star, but it's bright. And way over to it's where I was in the early evening, over to its right is Aldebaran, which is a now much dimmer reddish star, which used to be similar in brightness. So Earth and Mars are closing in on each other, and it'll be uh, December 8th. They'll be at opposition, and uh, it'll keep brightening until then when it's on the opposite side of the Earth from the sun. And then if you live in most of Europe, do you live in most of Europe, Matt? No, you don't. I don't even live in a small portion of Europe. In most of Europe, southwestern Asia, and northeastern Africa, on October 25th, the moon will cover part of the sun. Ah! (laughs) It's normal, everyone. Don't worry. It is a partial solar eclipse. However, do not stare at the sun because it still will um, burn your eyes out. So find an indirect way. You can find plenty of tips on the web for watching it if that's where you are. You can get times and dates. Just search on the web. On to this week in space history, Mars Odyssey, working since 2001. Amazing. 
And uh, four years ago, Bepi Colombo launched and is headed on its way, winding its way to Mercury uh, with uh, a couple of spacecraft, with ESA and JAXA, the Japanese space agency involved. I move on to random space fact. I think you made it to fifth gear there. Yeah, I was trying for eighth. So you may ask yourself, Matt, I know I've heard you ask, who was the first ESA astronaut to command the International Space Station? So there were a bunch of Americans and and Russians. And you know who that was, Matt? I have heard the name. I forget. Who was it? He had from most of Europe, but most specifically <laughs> Belgium. Uh-huh. Frank Viscount de Wynne. Yes, that is the name that I remember. Little nobility in space. On to the trivia contest. I asked you to name the solar system body and the category of geologic feature that are officially named after Abandoned Cities of Antiquity. How'd we do, Matt? Just a moderate response, but some really good stuff in here. And we have a poem and a song. I'm going to start with the poem from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Apologies to anyone who may have once lived in one of these ancient cities. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I traveled to Timgad and also to Angkor. Cahokia marked off my list. To Pastrum I journeyed, Corral then I hurried before they would cease to exist. These cities of ancients, abandoned on earth, our histories try to explain, and all of them named as a lengthening valis, engraved out on Mercury's plain. Ooh. Very dramatic. Yeah, I feel a, what is that, a sense of awe. Ah, yes, you should. So these are valleys, right? Otherwise in Latin, valis on, on Mercury? Yes, that is exactly right. That is what is named after the abandoned cities or technically towns or settlements of antiquity that you've nicely listed off uh, most, if not all of them. Who is our winner? Lisa Werner. She's a first-time winner out of Wisconsin. She said, uh, Valerie's, uh, Valerie's, Valleys on Mercury. <laughs> And so uh, congratulations, Lisa. We have a terrific prize for you. It's the CD, the just released album of the Moon Symphony from Signum Classics with uh, liner notes partially prepared by yours truly. (laughs) Seriously, it's that marvelous performance by the London Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Marin Alsop, composed by... Amanda Lee Falkenberg, who, of course, we have uh, had on the show, and uh, we covered that uh, recording session. So uh, congratulations, Lisa. We'll put that in the mail. I think it's a signed copy of the CD, signed by Marin Alsop. Please take us to another contest. Put your thinking caps and research fingers on on ready. Although it, it is possible you will know this, in which case I salute you. What? Popular, let me rephrase, what video game popular particularly in the 1980s owes its name to William Herschel? Huh. So to narrow it down, because that Herschel guy got around popular in the 1980s and other times, but that was its heyday. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. That is very interesting. And you have until the 26th, October 26th, at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this one. And, you know, we have to stick with this theme after talking to two of the great discoverers 
of uh, asteroids, discoverers and trackers in our solar system. What else but a planetary society kick asteroid rubber asteroid for uh, the one who gets this one? That's it. How very appropriate. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about a video game where the main character is Matt. Thank you, and good night. Ooh, that's, uh, ooh, oh, Matt, watch out. Look out, look out. <laughs> Apparently, you, you have played Donkey Kong. Uh, that's Bruce. <laughs> He's the chief scientist of uh, the Planetary Society who joins me, Mario, every week for What's Up. Oh, I, did, I was debating between Donkey Kong and the Princess. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its watchful members. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletto are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Add Asteroid. Asteroid.